Kids can be dismissed at this time as we prepare for the message. As they're being dismissed, if you want to follow along in your Bible, the passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at today in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. So you can find that either on your phone or in your physical Bible, and you can put your finger in there or bookmark it, and then when I read it later, you can follow along. Now, before I start today's message, I... I want to set something straight, something I just have to get off my chest, because I'm sure a number of you have already heard about this, maybe some of you haven't, but I just wanted to kind of um, start with this, and then I'll get into my message. And that is, uh, for those of you that follow our church soccer team, a couple of weeks ago, we lost in the semifinal 3-2. We had a great season, but it was a a sad game, a close game, but we lost 3-2. Now, the reason I want to just get this off my chest right now is because there are people that are disappointed in this, and I just want you to know that I play goal for our team, and I just need people to know that this loss was not my fault. <laughs> it, why are you laughing at me? I'm, I'm serious. If, if, if the defense would have done their job, we wouldn't have lost. It's not my fault. And, and also, if our offense would have scored a few more goals... Uh, we wouldn't have lost the game either. So it, it really isn't my fault. I mean, I'm the last person back. If the rest of the team would have done their job, we would have won that game. We would have been on to the final, and who knows what would have happened after that. Now, I also know that some of you today probably didn't like the fact that we had communion before the message. Well, I want to tell you that that's not my fault either. That was Jerry's idea, Pastor Jerry. He's the one that came up with it, and so if anybody has any problem with it, don't come talk to me after. You go talk to Jerry, because that was Jerry's idea. Now, I hope that hearing these statements is making you think that something's not quite right. Because if hearing these statements is making you think, yeah, yeah, this is just typical Pastor Steph, then I got some soul-searching to do. Because I actually try to discipline myself to not be someone who blames other people. But it is so easy to get into that, isn't it? It's so easy to to pass the blame onto someone else. We all want to be the hero. We, We all want to be the one that everybody looks up to. And so it's natural to blame someone else, to look for a scapegoat. So truth be told, yes, we lost three to two. And yes, those three goals that went in the net were my fault. And also, truth be told, I was the one that came up with the idea of having communion before the message today. But even if Jerry would have, I wouldn't have told you that anyway, because I would not want to try to point fingers. But to let people, well, hopefully, learn to not be blamers. My message this morning is is not about the Bethany soccer team. My message this morning is not about the order of service, although the application of my message today can certainly apply to all those things as well. Uh, But what I want to address today is an area in the church, in its history, where this sin of blaming has had terrible consequences, has literally cost the lives of millions of people over the centuries. And the reason I want to talk about this today is not because I want us to all feel guilty, because guilt alone doesn't produce anything valuable. The reason I want to talk about this today is 
because the text in Scripture that we are working on today deals with this issue, and it's important for us to remember and to be called to repentance, to steer clear of it in the future. So what is this sin of blaming that I'm talking about? What is this sin that the church has participated in over the centuries that has cost the lives of millions of people? The sin I want to address this morning is the sin of blaming the Jewish people for the death of Jesus Christ. Now, anti-Semitism has been around forever. You can go back even before the days of Christ, back into Old Testament times. Anti-Semitism has shown itself in many different forms. Unfortunately, the the type of anti-Semitism that has been adopted by the church in many times in the church's history is an anti-Semitism which has blamed the Jewish people for being Christ killers. And because they have been called Christ killers, have had terrible doctrines and ideas imposed upon what should happen with the Jewish people. The early church father Jerome identified the Jews with Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus and used money immorally and he said this is what all Jews are like and therefore that the curse of Judas Iscariot is a curse that has now been placed on all the Jewish people. Chrysostom preached that the sins of the Jews was communal and endless And it included even those Jewish people who had not yet been born. For killing Christ, Chrysostom even said in some of his sermons, was the ultimate evil and therefore they themselves deserved to be killed. Now Augustine, on the other hand, didn't argue for the death of the Jews. But the reason he didn't argue for the death of the Jews is because Augustine thought they should be left alive to suffer as perpetual reminders to everybody in the world of their murder of Jesus Christ. Ambrose saw the Jews as a special group damned to hell and encouraged Christians to enslave them. Then there's Martin Luther's pamphlet that he wrote near the end of his life. My history professor in seminary said that God should have killed him two years before, earlier, and it would have saved him from some of the horrible things he said at the end of his life. Uh, he turned into a grumpy old man. Uh, on his, one of the last tracts that he wrote was on the Jews and their lies, in which Luther referred to the Jews as venomous beasts, vipers, disgusting scum, and devils incarnate. He then provides recommendations for Jewish oppression and expulsion. In this little treatise he wrote, he says their private houses must be destroyed. Let the magistrates burn their synagogues and let whatever escapes be covered with sand and mud. Let them be forced to work. And if this avails nothing, we will be compelled to expel them like dogs in order not to expose ourselves to incur the divine wrath and eternal destruction from the Jews and all their lies. Now, Luther's remarks would eventually be used to fuel the fires of Hitler's Holocaust. A Holocaust, unfortunately, that was supported by much of the German church in the day. 
and only support it because these kinds of ideas were in the German Christians of the day. And even if they claim that they didn't know everything that Hitler was doing well before the war began, Hitler was already causing the Jews to close their shops and wear stars of David so people would know. And the church, for the most part, took no stand. In fact, some of them even preached from their pulpits the encouragement of it, seeing Hitler as a new Messiah that had come in the same trajectory as Jesus Christ. Discussing this and other issues of racism which the church has capitulated in, like the Rwandan genocide which the Christian church then also in that genocide for the most part supported. Christian historian Brian Stanley writes, the ideas of racial differences played a prominent part in the history of collective human violence. It is also undeniable that the churches in many cases proved receptive to such ideas to an extent that poses uncomfortable questions for Christian theology. Why do the Christians continually fall into this? We see it even today in America. In fact, American history is full of this stuff from the very origins of American history, often perpetuated by the church. Not convinced, you can also read James Carroll's 780-page book, Constantine's Sword, if you need more convincing. The book's not necessarily about Constantine, but it's just a, it's a history of anti-Semitism in the church. And it's not like in order to come up with this, I'm grasping at extremes, some, some extreme fringe wing of the church that nobody really took seriously, and I'm just grabbing these people to try to make a point. The people that I mentioned before, Jerome, Chrysostom, Augustine, Ambrose, Luther, these have been seen and still are to this day some of the theological pillars of our church. The Augustines and Ambroses are people that churches of every evangelical, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox look to as some of the ones that, that helped us form our scriptures, understand our scriptures, given us our traditions of the creeds. And yet somehow, these views of anti-Semitism still seeped into their works. Just like the blindness blindness of some of our, our great evangelical forefathers who owned slaves and even preached slavery as supported by scripture. Now you may say, but Pastor Steph, why are you preaching about this this Sunday? This is all in the past. What relevance does this have for us today? Um, not only is this all in the past, but we're Canadians, we're tolerant. We don't think like this. What relevance does this possibly have other than maybe just some academic exercise. So before we, we dive into our text this morning, let me give you three very short answers to that objection. And the first is that our past affects our thinking today, whether we realize it or we don't realize it. Plus, rightly or wrongly, the sins of the past church are our sins. They're part of our family. And so we need to take ownership of what our forefathers and foremothers stood for or said even wrongly and repent. 
It's like Nehemiah in the Old Testament when he prayed for the sins of his people. He included himself in that prayer even though he was not literally doing some of those same things in idol worship and that. He, he said, us, it's, it's me, these are my people, this is our church. And so we need to acknowledge our past history, positive and negative. Secondly, even if racism and anti-Semitism are not issues for us now, we continue to make sure that they're not issues for us now by remembering the past, not by forgetting about it. I know some people get really irritated when, when they go to assemblies and stuff and, and they start off the assembly by saying, we want to remember that we are on the land of such and such a people and all of that. But I'm thinking, for the, for the 20 seconds that, that that takes, is it really that bad to remember what did happen? There were some awful things that happened. There were some terrible things that happened. And it's good for us and it's good for our children to remember that. Why? So that we don't repeat our mistakes. So that we don't repeat those same things. We repeat history. Why? Because we forget history. And so we're trying to remember. Third, we have to be careful not to reduce Christianity to a false religion of self-help. By making it always about something relevant for us. It's one of the things that sometimes irritates me a lot in the ministry. Is what relevance that has, does that have to me? Uh, last night, somebody I'm going to mention a little bit um, later in the sermon. Someone who did stand up uh, against the, the Nazi regime. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In one of his writings that I was reading last night. Was talking about the cult of relevance in the church. And he says that always looking at the Bible. Always demanding relevance. Turns Christianity into nothing but paganism. It turns Christianity, it turns God into to a, 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 like a lucky rabbit's foot. He's always out there just to serve me. He has to be relevant for me. Uh, what Bonhoeffer was encouraging is that when we come to the Bible, it is about knowing God and what he's doing. And just basking in who, yes, there are certain aspects of it that are relevant, but just knowing God, knowing who he is, knowing his character shapes who we are. Could you imagine if getting to know my wife, I was like learning certain things about her personality and all I said was, well, what relevance does that have to me? Is there any practical relevance? And if it's like, no, there's no direct relevance, I don't really care about that part, that side of you. In fact, that part of your mind is a little complicated. I don't even want to kind of go there. There's a worship in just coming to know God and when we are soaked in the presence of God like the Bonhoeffers were. It's going to be the very thing that prepares us for false ideologies and false religions and paganism and superstition and these things that so easily creep into the church. The depth that it takes that doesn't always have a, a, a simple, easy five steps. So let's go into our text. Now, with that as a caveat of why we're going to look at an issue of anti-Semitism, even though we might not think it's relevant for us right now, because it teaches us something about the character of God, who he is. And it's an act of repentance from some of our past mistakes. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 23 to 31, what we have here is the disciples, particularly Peter and John, giving a, a little speech after they've been released by the Jewish leaders who have 
basically caught them, chastised them for teaching the name of Jesus, and then told Peter and John that they're not allowed to preach about Jesus anymore, and uh, John and Peter are just going to completely ignore the Jewish leaders, and they're going to do it anyway. There's a time you obey government, and there's a time when you don't, and they're choosing the latter in this case. And then we read here in verse 23 that as soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God and said, O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, creator of the sea and everything in them, all this ordinary stuff, you're the creator of it all. You spoke long ago by your Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, and you said... Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas and Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus Christ. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they preached the word of God with boldness. What we see here is the fact that yes, Peter and John were captured, persecuted, and told not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore by Jewish leaders. There's no denying that. That's a historical fact. What we also have to remember though is that Peter and John are themselves Jewish. What we have first off in the very story is not Jews against other people. But we have Jews who were against Jesus and we have Jews who were for Jesus. The dividing line is how one responds to Jesus. And this also seems to be the very message that John and Peter are preaching. The very message they want to get across in their prayer here that we have just read. For not one time in this prayer, but three times in just a couple of sentences, they make this point repeatedly. They they go back to the scriptures to root it in scripture by quoting from Psalm 2, quoting David. And they connect it with the way the people have responded to the Messiah. And first off, they say, we shouldn't be surprised by this. This was all prophesied. Uh, David wrote about this a thousand years before Jesus even came on the scene. Quoting from Psalm 2, they say, why were the nations so angry? Why were the kings of the earth prepared for battle? The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Now, to to, to help you sort of follow this and see this, I've highlighted some of the key words in there to 
to show the point that's being made. Notice that from this very passage of Scripture, it is the nations that have rebelled against God. Notice from this passage of Scripture in Psalm 2 that it is the rulers of the earth that are against God's Messiah. The gift, or or the gift, the guilt is universal. It's, It's everyone who is implicated by this. There's not one group that can be blamed for the rejection of Jesus Christ. And now Peter and John move from this very passage of Scripture, again, written a thousand years before this happened, and say, now this is happening before your very eyes in this city. They're saying that this very thing that's just happened right now, this whole um, rejection of Jesus Christ, this is being fulfilled right now, right as we are speaking in this very city of Jerusalem. Verse 27, this has happened in this very city. You can say, oh, how then did this happen? How did the nations, how did the kings and rulers of the earth condemn God's Messiah right here in the city of Jerusalem in Peter and John's day? Well, they go on to explain. They say for Herod Antipas, who was the Jewish ruler, and the governor Pontius Pilate, the Gentile ruler, were both involved in Jesus' condemnation. We have here by the two rulers that were involved in condemning Jesus to death, we have a, a Jewish ruler and a Gentile ruler. And what they're saying is that these rulers represent everybody. Just as Adam represents everybody, these rulers represent everybody. And these rulers, by condemning Jesus to death, are fulfilling the psalm. In fact, if just that representation isn't clear enough, he goes on in the next verse, 20, uh, verse 28, to expound that even more. He says, therefore, the Gentiles and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus. Remember even in the story of Jesus' crucifixion, Herod and Pilate were, they weren't very favorable towards each other. And when they conspired together to kill Jesus, it says that they became friends that day. Sometimes when you have a common enemy, suddenly you become friends. The Gentiles and the people of Israel, they were all united against Jesus, your holy servant. Whom you God anointed. This is why what happened is a fulfillment of Psalm 2. The nations and the kings of the earth fought against God's Messiah. And Peter and John are saying, and this has happened in this very day, right in the city of Jerusalem. You got Herod, you got Pontius Pilate, you got the Gentiles, you got the people of Israel, and they were all united against Jesus. The fact that the church can place the blame of the death of Jesus on the Jews alone is ludicrous. It's simply not taking the scripture in this regard serious enough. It's not knowing the scriptures 
And it's hard to say about some of the greats of, of history who knew the scriptures way better than I do, but in this particular area, as sometimes we do, I wonder sometimes in our generation what people in the future will look back on, we have blinders on. And in this particular area, the church and many of even the great people of scripture had blinders. They couldn't see it because they had cultural things that got in the way. Prejudices. It's so clear in scripture that it was all people. In fact, to believe that it was the Jews solely that were responsible for the death of Jesus is actually to deny scripture. It's not only to to ignore it, it's to deny it. It's to say that Psalm 2 has not been fulfilled. Because Peter and John are saying this is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. If it was only the Jews that killed Jesus, then Psalm 2 has not been fulfilled. Then this has not been fulfilled in this city on this day. Then we have unfulfilled scripture. Time and again, the church runs amok because she does not know her scripture. Or has a superficial understanding of scripture, which takes a lot of cultural ideas and then simply looks or scratches the surface of a smattering of proof texts without any context, without any background or understanding of God's overall story. As I've said before and I'll I'll repeat, a superficial understanding of Scripture is more dangerous than no understanding of Scripture at all. There, have been, there has been more damage in the world and in the church by people who superficially know Scripture than people who don't know it at all. And therefore, I caution you, if you are going to read the Bible, if you're going to read Scripture, if you're going to study it, do it well or don't do it at all. Because doing it poorly leads to a dangerous cultural Christianity, which is full of superstition, nationalism, folklore, hearsay, false comfort, and being unable to sort out truth from falsehood, where ideologies like anti-Semitism come along and are even supported by the church. Now, I realize Sundays like last week are fun. A lot of people, they, they love, I love last week's Sunday. I mean, I, I got to play a goofy character and put tomato soup all over my face and make kids laugh and, and tell the very basic story of Jesus. And we love that kind of stuff. And there are some people, even adults, that are like, can't we just do that all the time? Can't we just make things simple and fun? And the problem is, is that last Sunday was geared for kids. And we can't stay there. There's not enough meat in last Sunday's service for adults to regularly diet on. And if the church merely stays at that kind of level, it is so easily swayed by the culture of the day or by traditionalism. As Paul wrote in Corinthians, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regards to evil, be infants. Yes, But in your thinking, be adults. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children, Paul said. In regards to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. 
And it was the mature thinking of men like Niemöller and Barth and Bonhoeffer. The book club that Nancy and I are doing right now is, is studying the life of Bonhoeffer whose lives were soaked in biblical theology, who were the ones who resisted Hitler. Or unfortunately, most other German pastors of the day simply went along with Hitler, upholding a deluded Christianity with pious cliches, flowery Bible verses, and supposedly biblical principles on how to have a happy life. It was all about getting souls into heaven, escaping this horrible world, and therefore had no relevance in regards to what was going on with the Nazis because it was just hunkered down. Jesus is probably coming back again. Let's get out of here. Rather than the good and the deep and the biblical theology of the fact that it's God who's bringing his kingdom to this earth and God is going to restore his creation and his God is going to set his governorship over this world. It was those people who were infused with that kind of biblical thinking who were able to stand up to Hitler and say, that is a false messiah. That is an antichrist. That is everything anti-God and his creation, and therefore we oppose it. Not because we're trying to get out of here, but because it is we who under Christ's reign are going to be the meek who inherit the earth. And unless we have good theology like that, we'll not be able to oppose false thinking. It's tempting to blame the government, to blame our teachers, our coaches, our pastors. And who doesn't like to blame referees? I mean, that's... that's I, I actually am thinking about becoming a referee, and I, I just got the latest email. There's a course at the end of August that I need to take, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about signing up for it. But part of me is going... Do I really want to do that? I mean, I mean, basically, it's just like, let's put a target on yourself and let everybody hate you. But I don't know. There's something kind of fun about that. And I'm thinking about becoming a referee, and then people can all blame me because no one ever loses the game on their merit. It's always that the referee makes a bad call. And we can blame our disabilities. We can blame the devil. And we even blame the Jews. We blame we look around and we see our oceans covered in plastic. We see children with absent fathers. We see growing men with video game addictions. And people continually changing their gender. And as Christians, we wonder, what's this world coming to? But the problem is, is that doesn't help us at all. It's all pointing at them. Look at them, look at them, look at those crazy people, look at them, blame, blame, blame. And then what happens when we are constantly thinking of this, what's this world coming to ideology, all these bad people out, them, is that it starts to seep into, if we could only get them out of our country, if we could only get them out of power in the government, if we could only get them out of our city, if we could only get them out of our schools or, or out of our block, if we could only get them it starts to sound like building walls. They're the problem. But the scandal of the church is that every time we keep pointing fingers and blaming them, guess what happens? The world very quickly finds out that all those problems are right here in the church. And sometimes they're even nastier because as a church we try to cover them up. 
And yet all those same things that were pointing, 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 it doesn't take long for a few layers to be peeled back and say, you got, that's going on with you. When we look at the scripture, we don't find the scripture encouraging us to keep blaming them. In fact, what's wrong with the world is kind of the silliest question, uh, question a Christian should ever ask because we already know the answer to that. It's called sin. Whenever people ask me, I just don't understand. People they are just so like bad. Again, I'm like, you don't, how long have you been a Christian? It's called sin. Why are we surprised by it? If we know the book, the scriptures, we know that we're steeped in it. But the direction the scripture points to is at ourselves. The blame is me. What Joy G.K. Chesterton wrote that ironically profound essay. There was a, a, a magazine back in the 1800s that that was asking for people to put submissions in to answer the question, what's wrong with this world? And G.K. Chesterton won the competition by writing back two words, I am. Everybody else wrote these big, long treatises about them. We get rid of the communists, or get rid of these people, or get rid of that. And Chesterton just said, I am. I wish I was that smart and could hand in a two-word essay to um, a contest or my professors. But, but he got it right, I am. The only direction the scripture points to is that all Jews, all Gentiles, all of us stand guilty. It's not that we're here together participating in communion because we're so righteous and holy and all them are the problem out there. We're simply gathering together because we're the problem. And we recognize that Jesus is the answer. That's why Paul says, as the scriptures say, this is just knowing the scriptures, as the scripture says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. It's basic Christianity, but it has become more and more foreign. A number of years ago, I was asked to give the commencement speech at a seminary. Um, and and I... I used this as my basic text rather than kind of preaching God as a wonderful plan for your life. You're all awesome. You're all going to do, you know, all that kind of cliches. I said, we've got to remember none of us are righteous. No one's good. No one's truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. And this describes every one of us. And I was, a few days later, I was called up by, by the president of the school very angry because they did not find that my message was very encouraging to the way people are. And I said, but it's, it's what the Bible says. It, it, it's, we have to start by recognizing we're sinners. And even at this Bible school seminary, it was like, well, you know, it's just kind of negative. Why don't you just tell people that they're special and that they're lovely and that God loves every one of them and has a wonderful plan for their life and, and, and yada, yada. And I'm like, yeah, but you want to know People that go around thinking, I'm special, I'm wonderful, God has a wonderful plan for my life, I'm going to change the world, they become dangerous people if they don't recognize that they're sinners. 
and that most of their ideas and most of their thinking and that has full of ego and full of themselves and, and full of all kinds of false thinking too. They need to start by recognizing that they're first sinners. Paul sums all of this up by saying, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Every single one of us has done a face plant. It's not those Jews over there. It's not those sinners over there. It's not those transgender people. It's not those, 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 whatever we want to point to. It's me. I'm a sinner. You can't get much clearer than that. And that's exactly what Peter and John are saying in today's passage. It wasn't the Jews. It was the Jews and the Gentiles. It was all the nations, all the kings, all the world. It was everybody. And this was prophesied in the Old Testament that we would reject God and we would reject his Messiah. It was me, myself, and I who sinned in Adam. It was me, myself, and I who sinned in my ancestors who nailed Jesus to the cross. It is me, myself, and I who deny Jesus, disobey him, reject him, ignore him, shun him, rebel against him, and put myself continually ahead of him. I'm to blame. And yet, and yet, everyone has sinned is directly followed by these beautiful words. And yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. And do you notice in there, there's nothing that I did. It's not because I was particularly special or particularly holy or particularly gifted. It was simply In his grace, he freely makes me right in his sight. And this alone should take away any blaming when I look at somebody else. The only thing that's different between me and you is that I've recognized God's grace. And it's even by his grace that I recognize it. And that that grace is extended to you as well. It's only grace. And if the only difference between me and anybody else is grace, how can I boast? Because grace is not something I earned, not something I'd even deserve. Christ offers forgiveness to all who acknowledge that they are at fault and turn from their sins and ask for forgiveness. It's in receiving this undeserved forgiveness that we're set free. Not free to keep on sinning. I mean, that's just going back into slavery. That's like going back to Egypt after you've been set free. We're free now not to sin. By his grace. The very thing that we did to reject God, God turned it around to save us. This is why Paul writes, May I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is offered to guilty Jews and guilty Gentiles. It's offered to all of us. God wishes that none should perish and continue in sin, that all should come to know him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And therefore, when we begin to understand this, we understand that salvation is completely from God and for those who do not yet understand it or have accepted it, it's for God to deal with, not us. We are called to live by four words that if we truly embrace them would, would completely change our orientation. Those four words are blame myself, boast Christ. Imagine if that was our motto, our slogan. We're at fault, but God has brought undeserved forgiveness to all who are willing to humble themselves and receive it. Blame myself, boast Christ. Living by this would pretty much solve 90% of our problems, wouldn't it? I mean, what do, what do 90% of church problems stem from? It's that person's fault, it's that group's fault, those people said that, that pastor's better, that person's, it's all point, 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 point. Blame myself, boast Christ would also help us come across less hypocritical, arrogant, and judgmental to those in the world. Because instead of us coming out and condemn, condemn, condemn everybody else, we're simply saying, hey, we're sinners. We messed up in the past. Some wrong things in the past. But we want to repent, we want to say we're sorry, we want to learn from it, and we want to move forward. We're not morally superior. We're not looking down our noses at everybody else's sinfulness. We're to blame. We're sinners. We don't have a moral code to share with the world. We don't have a political party that we are forming to save our nation. We don't even have a wonderful church group that's going to solve all the problems. We have Jesus Christ. That's all we have to offer. We boast Christ. God loved us so much that he came to us in Jesus Christ. And through his death and his resurrection, his desire is to save us and his creation. And we've decided to join him in that. We too are the chief of sinners. We too are Christ killers. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we blame ourselves, but we boast in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, it's all you. There's nothing more we can say, but thank you. Forgive us for not repenting, not falling on our face and bringing our own sin before you, and constantly trying to blame everybody else for what's wrong. Lord, may we be people who get right with you. And simply because we have embraced your grace. May we be people who extend grace to others so that your Holy Spirit will work in their lives and your Holy Spirit will bring them to, to redemption. Amen.